If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome to another episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, where we tackle a historical topic through popular internet search queries combined with the questions that you've sent in via social media. Today, we're exploring the Russian revolutions of 1917, in the company of the historian Robert Service. Putting the questions to him was BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Today, I'm joined by Robert Service, who is Emeritus Professor of Russian History at St Anthony's College, University of Oxford, and also he's a Hoover Institute Senior Fellow. He's a world-leading expert on communism and Russia's revolutionary age. Among his many books on the subject are biographies of Lenin, Stalin and Trotsky, as well as The Last of the Tsars, Nicholas II and the Russian Revolution. So, Robert, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, to begin with, um, there were actually two Russian revolutions in 1917, and I suppose it would make sense to begin with the first one in February. So could you please tell us how does this uprising actually begin? Well, there have been a lot of problems uh, through the uh, through the First World War, the Great War, uh, in Russia. Actually, there were in most of the uh, belligerent countries, uh, but they were particularly uh, bad in Russia because uh, the strikes in 1915 and 1916, at the end of both those years, were pretty devastating. So it was a very brittle situation already, industrially. And added to this, there was the problem of food supplies uh, to the big cities, because the peasants weren't getting uh, what they thought was a, a, a fair return for their crops. And uh, there was a political element to all of this because the Tsar, Nicholas II, uh, fell into tremendous disrepute, um, partly because of Rasputin, the, uh, the holy man who helped 
with the heir to the thrones problems with haemophilia, partly because of the German origins of the Empress Alexandra. All of these things came together in February 1917, and women textile workers went on strike again, uh, and they were joined by factory workers from the big uh, metalworking factories in Petrograd. And Petrograd was the big center of the armaments industry. When these two things happened, the textile workers and the metal workers together, then there was only the army to stop a revolution. And the army, composed of uh, peasants who didn't really want to be in the garrison in Petrograd and certainly didn't want to be sent to the front, they refused to turn their fire on the striking workers. And at that point, it was difficult to see how Nicholas II could survive because the parliament, the state Duma, uh, had been dispersed by the emperor himself so that there was hardly anybody in the Duma who wanted to save the emperor. And in the high command, they were exasperated by the uh, general situation and they indicated to the emperor that they would prefer him to step down from the throne. And to everyone's surprise, he did so uh, without a whimper. He, he stepped down and said, right, if this is the situation, I will abdicate. And so the revolution was, was over almost before it began. And did this February revolution have any recognised leaders? It, that's a very good question. At the local level, on the streets, there were plenty of what the Tsar's police called agitators, uh, mainly socialists of all sorts, Mensheviks, socialist revolutionaries, Bolsheviks, and they were tremendously dynamic in saying to workers, look, it's, it's, it's not enough to um, demand food and better wages. Uh, it's not enough just to go on strike. You've got to pull this whole structure down. Uh, the answer to your problems is really fundamental. So they they helped to politicise a situation that was already moving towards being politicised even without them. So there were, there were a lot of local leaders. And in the Duma, the state Duma, the parliament, uh, there were many who were equally exasperated with the emperor, but hadn't actually provoked the strikes or, or led the uh, demonstrations through the streets, but wanted to involve themselves. Uh, and so these two sides came together. The, the socialists who were active in the crowds on the streets and the Duma leaders 
who had given up, or perhaps they had always opposed the emperor and wanted to take advantage of a situation that was really running out of control in the capital. As yet, nothing was happening in the rest of the country. So we've talked a bit about the shorter term reasons for the revolution, but what do you see as the deep underlying causes for what happened in 1917? Ah, that's that's very important. Uh, I've, I've always thought that it's it's a good thing to step back from the February Revolution and think about what problems any government that had power in 1917 would have been able to do at the beginning of the year in the light of the the tremendous economic uh, difficulties that the country faced. Uh, We tend to look at um, Nicholas II um, as a poor leader, his wife as an interfering uh, spouse, Rasputin as the source of immense scandal. And these were all very important aspects of what what happened but any government in power as the rest of 1917 was to show would have had difficulties uh, Russia's economy was not sufficiently modernized to be able to fight a long war against a modern military foe so that the dislocation of the economy was gathering pace in 1915, 1916, and into the beginning of 1917. Um, They could feed the troops, just about. They could supply them with sufficient munitions, just about. Uh, They could feed the horses, which of course was very, very important. Uh, in those days uh, at the front. They could do all of these things. They could prioritise military supplies through the rail network, but the result of that was a, a certain amount of trouble for the civilian economy. They weren't making spades for peasants. Uh, they weren't supplying uh, villages with kerosene for their lamps. Uh, so that the the uh, the breakup of the economy was partly a breakup between town and uh, village, and there was there was a structural basis to this that no government, whether it was an autocratic one, a liberal one, or a socialist one, could avoid. Um, having problems um, add that um, Nicholas II got the blame for all of this but what tends not to be appreciated is that personalities were important but the the general situation was more important whoever had been in power would probably have faced uh, some kind of insurgency 
Now, there was a previous revolutionary attempt in 1905. Why did that one not succeed in the way that 1917 did? Well, back in 1905, the army was teetering on the brink of going over to the side of the insurgents. But a sufficient number of loyal regiments uh, was found to suppress the trouble. And also, the workers stood out against the Tsar in 1905, and the peasants stood out against the Tsar in 1906, by and large. And so the the loyal regiments uh, were sufficient uh, in number and had sufficient time to move around and pick off the uh, resistance. This was not the case in 1917. The army in Petrograd uh, had had enough. And bear in mind that uh, when I talk about the army, I'm not just talking about the soldiers, talking about the officer class as well. Uh, Half the officer class did not any longer come from the landed gentry. Uh, They were people who had risen up through uh, society, got status through belonging to the army, and um, had not forgotten their roots, so that there there weren't many uh, soldiers who who wanted to die for the Tsar any longer. So it was... um, Really, Nicholas II was doomed. So we'll come on soon to talk about what happened in October, but I'd be interested to know what the Bolshevik leaders were doing in the February Revolution. Were they involved at all? Uh, that's, a, that's another good question. Well, the, the emigres obviously weren't. The, emig- the ones who were living safely in Switzerland or in um, France or in the United Kingdom, or in uh, North America, they scribbled away, um, but they were, they were as surprised as anyone else. Lenin, in early 1917, said he might not live until the day of the revolution. He was very, very gloomy. Uh, but the socialist parties, all of them, Uh, had survived persecution. Uh, They had been decapitated in a sort of serial fashion through the war and before the war, but always they somehow uh, sprang up with new local leaders. So when the street demonstrations happened in the February Revolution, they were there, uh, and they tended to uh, they tended to have the the confidence of young radicals whose whose fathers and mothers had suffered under the czars and who were determined that this time they were not going to be defeated. So uh, they were tough, and I'm not just talking about the Bolsheviks. 
the Mensheviks and the socialist revolutionaries, they were not going to uh, step back from the fray. So Tsar Nicholas is replaced by a provisional government, but this only lasts for a few months. And so, so a very pertinent question we had in from Richard Lyle on Twitter, which is, why was the provisional government so weak? Well, the provisional government wasn't elected. And so it lacked a certain amount of legitimacy. And its argument was, we can't hold an election yet because we're in the middle of a terrible war. We're in mortal danger. We have to lead the country through to uh, victory over the Germans. If we don't do that, then the country is going to be broken up and become a series of uh, German satellites, puppet states. Um, And that's why we can't settle the land question. Because if we start handing the land to the peasants, and, and probably a majority of ministers thought that ultimately there would be no peace in the countryside until the peasants got the land once and for all. But if they did that, then practically the whole of the army would have deserted because peasants would have wanted their their share of the land and most of the army were peasants. They couldn't disturb the, the military situation by radical social reform, even though most ministers wanted it. I mean, some wanted it more fervently uh, and more genuinely uh, than others. Um, so they they had this basic problem that they they wanted to they wanted to win the war. Um, some of them just wanted to survive the war, Russia to survive the war, but some of them wanted to actually smash the Germans. Uh, and take uh, take Istanbul or Constantinople, as the, the Russians called it, um, and want, uh, and um, they were in a bind because of this. It meant that there was a limited amount of um, authority that they could exercise, and they sought uh, as their best way out an alliance with the the Soviets and the leadership of the Soviets uh, that were prepared to work with the provisional government. So you had liberals in government and, and socialists in the Soviets who had this uneasy alliance, and it was always very brittle. And that's where this underlying economic an administrative um, difficulty comes into play. Whichever government had been in power after the February Revolution was going to have one hell of a problem in supplying food for people, in um, making the newly hired wages um, mean anything because inflation had been mounting throughout the war. In those circumstances, therefore, 
the government was bound to be fairly weak after the February Revolution, and weak it was. So it went through a number of compositions of itself, first of all being headed by liberals, and then headed by uh, Alexander Kerensky, who was a member of the Socialist Revolutionary Party. But it didn't, it didn't really make any basic difference because all of those variations of the provisional government were stuck with this burden that the, the government hadn't been elected. It needed to link up with other organisations in the country that had been elected by their constituencies. Uh, and it couldn't solve the land question. So the war and the land question and, and the, the non-elected status of the government, these were, these were difficulties that any government that came to power in the February Revolution would have had to deal with. We get so hooked on... Uh, what the Bolsheviks did next, uh, pulling Russia out of the war. It wasn't so easy to pull Russia out of the war. The, the Bolsheviks only managed it by the skin of their teeth when the situation was even worse in a, in a military um, sense. And um, it was bad enough for the Bolsheviks uh, uh, it would have been much worse in February and March 1917 uh, for any government that had tried to do that. So while, while this is going on, while the provisional government is struggling, what are the Bolsheviks doing? What is Lenin doing sort of post-February? Well, um, I think one has to move away from the idea that uh, Lenin was the all-active, dominant um, factor in the breakdown of the provisional government's authority. And I always think it's useful to bear in mind that you have a February revolution, admittedly that um, happens at the beginning of March, according to our calendar, Lenin doesn't get back to Russia until uh, the first week of April. And then uh, from the end of June, beginning of July, he has to go into hiding, eventually landing up in Helsinki. He comes back to uh, Petrograd in the... Uh, early early days of October, but he's not there a lot of the time and he's not always treated with obedience or even respect by the rest of the Bolshevik leadership. Uh, I've been trying to make this case for two or three decades now but I noticed that whenever you read a textbook on the Russian Revolution, um, this, um, what you might call contextualization, a bit of a poncy word, 
um, of Lenin's activity fails to really be recognized. He was an important leader, but he didn't always get his way with the Bolsheviks, but he did get his way on the big thing. The really big thing was that he rallied all of those Bolsheviks even before he got back to uh, to Russia from Switzerland. He rallied that element of the Bolshevik faction because it wasn't yet a party that wanted to get rid of the provisional government, that didn't want to make the sort of compromises that the Mensheviks and the socialist revolutionaries had made and which some Bolsheviks were making. So uh, about one big thing, he became more than just a figurehead. He became a motive force behind the idea that nothing would get solved in revolutionary Russia until a party or a group of parties came to power that were determined to end the war, scrap the dominance of uh, capitalism, and move forward into socialism. And um, in that respect, he was tremendously important, and so too was Leon uh, Trotsky. But they wouldn't have had any kind of a chance of coming to power had the situation not been so favourable to them, had the factories not been closing, had the peasants not been um, illegally um, pasturing their livestock on uh, their landlord's land and not paying their, their rent dues to landlords, had the soldiers not decided to... Um, disobey their officers at first in the garrisons and then at the front. If all of that hadn't been happening, then the Bolsheviks wouldn't have stood a chance and Lenin could have sung away about revolution as often as he wanted. It wouldn't have come to anything. The situation was very, very favourable. And that was, that was why he was... Um, so full of this instinct. If we don't do it now, we won't get another chance like that, like this. Uh, and he was right. He was right about that. But we shouldn't fashion out of him a sort of uh, uh, a, a demiurge of history, um, a sort of godlike. Um, you know what's happened is that uh, both on the left and on the right, there's been an agreement that uh, that as soon as he said anything, the rest of the Bolshevik party fell in with what he what he'd said. Um, the the evidence doesn't doesn't um, bear this out. And the Russian Revolution was a much more complex um, phenomenon than than what we were told by Soviet historians in the days of the USSR, and by anti-Soviet historiography at the same time. Uh, you've already mentioned a few other political parties that were operating at this time. So we had the Menshevik faction, the Socialist Revolutionaries, 
So why is it that it's the Bolsheviks who take power in October rather than one of these other groups? Well, the, the Mensheviks and the Socialist Revolutionaries uh, felt that it was irresponsible to take power in wartime and to have to bear the burden of leading a country in a war that neither the Mensheviks nor the socialist revolutionaries had wanted in the first place. So they thought they would be saddled with all manner of economic, social and political problems. The Mensheviks in particular also believed in what they took to be standard Marxist doctrine, that the country was not yet at a sufficient stage of economic development for it to uh, be possible to institute a a socialist um, regime with a socialist economy and a socialist administration. So there were there were both practical judgments and doctrinal ones that that kept them back from endorsing what Lenin and the Bolsheviks were in favour of. And by the way, a lot of Bolsheviks thought that it would be a very dangerous uh, step to take as well. So that in 1917, there's a sort of... um, a reconfiguration of the socialist movement in Russia. Those socialists who were Bolsheviks, who thought that Lenin's policy was dangerous, drifted over into the Menshevik camp. And those Mensheviks who wanted a more radical policy than the Menshevik leadership approved of, they drifted over into the Bolshevik camp and steadily the two camps separated into entirely separate political parties. There really isn't a Bolshevik party as such, a fully Bolshevik party, until the middle of 1917. It didn't come into being except as a faction uh, in in the February Revolution. So this is a very dynamic... Uh, situation. And of course, it's in situations like that, that someone who's, or a leadership that's confident and dynamic and ruthless, has a chance to exploit circumstances as as they change. And, And certainly the 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 leaders like Lenin, Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamyanov, actually they had a lot of disagreements among themselves, but but they had a sort of propulsive um, confidence that the Mensheviks and the socialist revolutionaries were rapidly losing because they could feel in their bones that the compromises that they'd made with the provisional government were leading them nowhere. And could we talk about the mechanics of the revolution itself? How do the Bolsheviks actually topple the provisional government? Well, that's that's a really 
uh, important subject. The Bolsheviks had um, an ambiguous attitude to the Soviets and the factory workshop committees and the trade unions. On the one hand, they saw them as class institutions, as institutions by the workers for the workers. On the other hand, they... They distrusted the working class. They thought the working class couldn't lead itself into the revolution. That's why you needed Bolsheviks. That had been the Bolshevik message for for years. But as the economy collapsed, the Soviets and the factory workshop committees uh, and the trade unions started to act against um, the government independently of the Bolsheviks and started to act as an alternative source of governmental power, of governing power. So Lenin, although he had his reservations about the Soviets, eventually came round to the view that if the Bolsheviks could only take over the Soviets, they could then declare not party government, but Soviet government uh, to be the future for socialism in Russia. So they, they penetrated the Soviets, the factory workshop committees, and the trade unions. They stood in the elections. Uh, They stood in the elections for city councils, even, uh, the old city Dumas. Uh, They stood everywhere. Um, Your typical Bolshevik was a young working-class lad who thought that the future had to be different and that it had to be um, a future where... People like himself, it was usually a male uh, or herself, um, uh, would have a say in the the governing of the country. So, So there was this tremendous surge of Bolshevik enthusiasm for the Soviets, and they put aside for a time their reservations about the Soviets. Those reservations were come, were to come to the fore again almost immediately after the October Revolution. But, but for the moment, uh, the Bolsheviks played down their reservations. And then, so, and then how do they sort of force a provisional government from power then? How do they take over the leadership of the country? Well, then, having mounted to a uh, a position of supremacy, particularly in the Petrograd Soviet, uh, they could then give orders, informal orders, unofficial orders, to the Petrograd garrison. They could say to the Petrograd garrison, don't obey the provisional government. Obey the Petrograd Soviet, 
so that uh, when Kerensky said to uh, the regiments in Petrograd to move against the Bolsheviks, uh, his orders weren't obeyed. I mean, they were obeyed by some regiments and some officers tried to get their regiments uh, to do more than um, uh, they were willing to do. But by and large, the Bolsheviks, by penetrating the Soviets and getting their their people elected to um, the Soviets, were in a position to turn a potential alternative agency of governing authority, the Soviets, into a real uh, governing authority. Um, so that all over the country then, after the, after the Bolsheviks did this in Petrograd in the October seizure of power, all over the country this pattern was replicated in the uh, urban Soviets, not so much in the countryside, but in, in, in the cities, particularly of industrial Russia. And um, we, we had a question on t- uh, Twitter from Whitsbury Jim, who asks whether we should think of October as a coup rather than a revolution. Yeah, um, I don't see why we have to choose between the two. Um, the Bolsheviks, after it had taken place, of course, called it uh, a revolution, but they also called it in Russian a perivarot, which is usually translated as a coup, because there was no doubt about it that in order to get rid of Kerensky, they had to take military action. They had to eject him from the Winter Palace, proclaim that they had toppled him, Uh, But they also argued that they were the largest force now in the Soviets. The Soviets were elected by the workers and the uh, soldiers. And so to that extent, they were reflective of the, the movement of popular opinion in the country. So there was something in that. Um, there wasn't enough in that, of course, uh, because when it came to the constituent assembly elections in November, the Bolsheviks got at most a quarter of the popular vote, which is hardly a ringing endorsement. But there were there was a lot of support for the Bolsheviks in the October seizure of power. And that's why people say, oh, it was a popular revolution. That's an exaggeration. Uh, But merely to say that it was a a tiny little group of conspirators who launched um, uh, an armed coup d'etat, that's an exaggeration too. It's it's a mixture of the two. Um, And certainly when they came to power... They issued decrees that were a radical break, a revolutionary break with what had gone on before. They said to the peasants, go get the land. They said 
to the Germans and the Austrians, we're not going to fight anymore. We want the war to be over and, and we're not going to launch any uh, offensive. They said to the owners of large-scale industry, we want your factories, we want your uh, plants. So that um, there's another aspect of something that's more than just a, um, a seizure of power by a tiny clique. They were, they were launching a truly basic shift in the way that uh, policy uh, was orientated. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So I don't think we can ever put uh, the Russian Revolution as event number two or three. It's got to be number one in, in the shaping of the history of the 20th century. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Speaking specifically about October, what is the role of what I guess you'd call the big three of Soviet history, um, Lenin, Stalin and Trotsky? Well, uh, Lenin was, was crucial in getting the decisions of the Bolshevik Central Committee on the 10th and the 16th of October in favour 
of a seizure of power. Uh, he did this by a majority. He did this at the expense of uh, forcing out part of his own Bolshevik Central Committee. It wasn't a happy couple of meetings, but he had the, the strength of personality and the strength of argumentation to push that through. He wasn't a genius of a tactician, though. It took Trotsky to say, look, we can't just seize power. We can't just um, do this as if it's us, a single party taking power. It's got to look as if uh, the Soviets are going to be the depository of the power that is seized. So we've got to time this so that it happens uh, at the time of the Second Congress of Soviets, which was due to meet, well, eventually it met on the 25th of October 1917. So Trotsky, Trotsky had a, a sort of important role in finessing this. And bear in mind that Trotsky was a new Bolshevik. He, he wasn't much liked by many of the old leading Bolsheviks. Um, he was very popular with a lot of the newer Bolsheviks uh, who didn't know anything about the Bolshevik past, but uh, he played a very important role. Uh, he needed Lenin, but Lenin needed him. Trotsky showed himself to have a tactical finesse that Lenin, Lenin lacked. Stalin was very important. Um, not so much in the seizure of power, but in running leading Bolshevik agencies throughout the summer and early autumn. He was, he was the rising figure in the Bolshevik central leadership, uh, much derided because he was thought of as being ill-educated and crude in his mannerisms. Uh, actually, he was not badly educated uh, and um, much brighter than they thought. He, they, they were snobs. They were um, middle-class revolutionary snobs towards him. And, of course, he made them pay a terrible price for their condescension towards him. But, you know, you just have to look at the jobs he got in the first months of uh Soviet power, as it was called, he was he was there with a, a cardinal importance uh, right from the start. Um, much underestimated man by the historians, even of nineteen seventeen. There was a book written some years ago, Stalin, the man who missed the revolution. A good example of how. Um, Historians underestimated uh, Joseph Stalin. Um, you know, he was an editor. He was an organiser. He knew his own mind. He didn't mind saying that to Lenin. He certainly enjoyed saying that sort of thing to Trotsky, whom he hated. And Trotsky hated him back. Um, yeah, they were... They were they were emerging as the big three, 
Lenin was already one of the big three. Trotsky was becoming a member of the big three. And Stalin was running up on the rails and and joining them. Now, so the, the Bolsheviks have seized power, but but their their hold is, is pretty shaky at first. Um, we had a question from Ryan Kiziel on Twitter, and he wanted to know how near did Russia come to a counter-revolution at this point? That's an excellent uh, question. Um, in October and November 1917, there weren't many people who thought the Bolsheviks would last very long. And among the among the Bolsheviks, there was a phrase, we're living on our suitcases. In other words, they packed their suitcases in their rooms in case they had to suddenly flee again. These were people who'd fled a lot in their lives. And so they, they were worried about the possibility that they wouldn't win the early battles in Petrograd and Moscow, and that there might be some kind of military uh, counter-coup uh, against them. But the, the counter-revolutionaries, the anti-Bolsheviks, weren't very well organised. They had no single unified strategy. They were politically arguing among uh, themselves and the Bolsheviks had a chance to take advantage of uh, the situation. Um, I think the whole of 1917 is uh, a period in which the dog of counter-revolution did not bark. Um, Look at the Kornilov revolt of... Uh, the late summer of 1917. It melts away before it gets going. Uh, This is not like the military counter-coups in 1919 in Germany, uh, where uh, the discontented uh, right-wing soldiers and officers snuff out Red Revolution very abruptly and very, very brutally. This didn't happen in in Russia. The officer class was demoralized, disorganized, um, and didn't have uh, a, a a single proactive view as to how to take on the Bolsheviks. It didn't really have that view until late 1918, by which time the Reds, the Bolsheviks, had really organized themselves and they had reorganized the Soviet state. They got themselves a Red Army. Um, They'd centralized their people's commissariats. Uh, They'd disciplined their own party. That was a big job. Uh, And they were in a position to defend themselves much more readily than they would have been against a, a military counter-coup if it had been effectively led back in the last days of 1917? That's a really good question. And so 
there is eventually a civil war in Russia where the what become known as the Whites take on the Red Army. Why ultimately do you think it's the Bolsheviks that triumph in that clash? There actually are civil wars happening all over Russia, more or less from the October Revolution onwards. And a lot of those civil wars are Reds versus Reds because the socialist revolutionaries don't take uh, don't take it lying down in 1917 to 1918. Uh, they fight the Bolsheviks. Uh, they're socialists who've won the biggest part of the election to the Constituent Assembly in November 1917, and the Bolsheviks forcibly dispersed the Constituent Assembly in January 1918. So there there are civil wars going on um, all over the former Russian Empire. But the Bolsheviks managed to survive, partly because they they don't have an international military intervention to contend with at at that time, apart from the Germans. And they give Ukraine and what we now call Belarus away to the Germans through the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. But within the area of Soviet power in central and northern Russia, the Bolsheviks managed to hang on. And then the whites, the out-and-out counter-revolutionaries, people who detest socialism, mainly officers from the old imperial army, finally get their act together and form at least three big armies under Kolchak, Denikin and Yudjenich, all of whom have been very high-ranking officers under both Nicholas II and Alexander Kerensky. And they start moving from different angles on Petrograd and Moscow. And within a year and a half, they're, they're gone. They're, they're, um, Kolchak is dead um, in Siberia. Denikin and Yudjenich f- flee. Their armies are dispersed. Uh, the Bolsheviks win uh, partly because they organize themselves well, effectively, ruthlessly, partly because they put together politics and um, war fighting more effectively than the whites did. The whites thought, we'll win the war first and then we'll sort out the political situation. The Bolsheviks fought the civil war that they had with the whites, uh, always with politics in mind. And the Bolsheviks were lucky. They were lucky that the Allied intervention by the, the, the British, the French and the Americans never came to very much. It was always only on the uh, periphery. And by the end of 1919, all of the Allied contingents were being uh, withdrawn. And a further factor, and I think this is uh, 
very, very important, is that the Bolsheviks never lost Moscow and Petrograd. And from Moscow and Petrograd, the railways uh, spread out all over the country, the telegraph system, uh, the postal system. The, the Bolsheviks were able to um, dominate that. And they also dominated uh, the parts of the country where the main military warehouses were. So even though they presided over a, a, an economy that was continuing to fall apart and industry was uh, in a terrible uh, state, they had bullets and, and rifles aplenty that they inherited from Nicholas II. So they had a huge military stock that it was difficult for the whites uh, to match. And they also had a human stock. If you look at the population of Russia, it's very, very heavily concentrated in the European parts of central and northern Russia. So they conscript soldiers more readily than was the case of the whites. So the, the whites uh, shot themselves in the foot in, in many ways, uh, but the, the reds came to the, to change the metaphor a bit, they came to the gaming table with higher cards in the first place. They stood a much better chance than their enemies uh, predicted, and that they themselves predicted. They were never wholly confident they were going to win the civil war, but they had a lot of luck on their side. And you, you mentioned in the last answer about the Allied intervention. So as a whole, what was the international response to the Russian Revolution? The German high command welcomed it because they wanted no trouble on what we in the West called the Eastern Front, uh, and what the Germans called the Eastern Front. It was what the Russians called their Western Front. So they welcomed it because they wanted to be able to, uh, to transfer dozens and dozens of army divisions from the Eastern Front to the Western Front so as to win the war in 1918 in spring and summer 1918, before the Americans became effectively involved on the Western Front. So uh, the Germans uh, helped to bring about the October Revolution. They supplied the Bolsheviks with money in the spring of uh, 1918. The Allies, of course, wanted... Russia to stay in the war and fitfully did what they could to overthrow the Bolsheviks in 1917 to 1918 with a view to putting in to power an administration that would resume the Russian participation in the war. When the war ended, 
on the Western Front, then the question arose, should the Allies still stay uh, on the periphery of Russia? Uh, the French were down in Odessa in Ukraine, the British were in Archangel, the Americans in eastern Siberia. And in all of those countries, there was trouble with the labor movement, which um, even if it didn't always support the Bolsheviks, didn't want another war, didn't want young men to be sent off to fight another war in Russia for the uh, restoration of capitalism to the Russian lands. I uh, didn't want to see lots more people dying, conscripts dying. Uh, so across 1919, steadily the Allied governing authorities decided it, it just w wasn't worth continuing with. Um, it would cause too much trouble at home. And there was plenty of trouble at home. Uh, the French and the British budgets were wrecked. Um, there was far too much else to think about and to do. And it was assumed that the Bolsheviks wouldn't, wouldn't last very much longer. Um, they were making a mess of their economy. You know, the, the Russian uh, industrial output by 1920 to 1921 was one-seventh of what it had been in 1913. One-seventh. There was a massive industrial depression in the country and uh, there was starvation. Surely the Bolsheviks um, would have to either give up their uh, extreme form of socialism or be overthrown. And they nearly were in 1920 to 1921 by peasant revolts in particular. So the, the Allies didn't have the confidence or the resources to take on a, a truly effective military intervention. If anything, the intervention was counterproductive because it, it meant that the Bolsheviks, who were internationalists and anti-nationalists, were thought of by many Russians as being the best national hope for Russia because so many countries were ganging up on Russia at the time. So this helped the Bolsheviks to some extent. And at what point would we say the Russian Revolution ends? Would it be with victory of the Civil War? Would you even go up to 1989? Um, I remember giving a talk in Moscow in 1989. And it was one of those big jamborees where Western and Soviet historians got together. And I remember saying how wrong it was for history to be looked at in the way that um, was becoming um, conventional in both the West and by then in the USSR, whereby 
uh, it was thought that uh, there was a Lenin period, which had nothing to do with a Stalin period, very radical break between the two. And uh, um, challenging the idea that somehow uh, the Russian Revolution came to an end uh, sometime in the lifetime of Lenin, or at least at Lenin's death. And I remember a, a Soviet historian uh, making a comment from the floor, saying, "Why was I? Why was I talking as if uh, even the civil war came to an end in Russia?" That um, the the economic and social and political institutions that were built by the Bolsheviks in the Civil War were still standing in the USSR in 1989 while we were debating this question. Um, his view then was that the revolution uh, was one thing, but the Civil War had made... Um, made the USSR, as it was to become, into the shape uh, that it held for another 70 years. Uh, this is a view that I hold to. I share that. I was so appreciative of uh, a, that it was a Soviet historian who later became a friend uh, had said this rather than some outsider like myself pontificating about um, Russian history. So I, 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 I don't think that um, uh, when the Civil War ended, the institutions and practices of the Civil War disappeared with them. Um, now, looking at kind of post-revolutionary Russia. Um, we had a question from Johnny White Eagle who said, how long after the revolution did it take before it dawned on the Russian people that they swapped one form of tyranny for another? <laughs> God, these are great questions. Um, uh, I think... Uh, I think we tend to assume that, or we can tend to assume if we don't look at the evidence carefully, we, we, we tend to assume there was a revolution and then a civil war, and then there were uprisings against the Bolsheviks. And the Bolsheviks were turned against as the civil war came to an end. And that's not really true. There were lots of Russians who hated the Bolsheviks right from the start, who didn't change their minds about them. Uh, uh, there were strikes in 1918 and 1919 in big industrial centres, which had supported the Bolsheviks in 1917. So that um, it, it wasn't the case that, that a large number of workers and 
peasants and soldiers suddenly came to the conclusion that the Bolsheviks were just as bad or perhaps even worse than Nicholas II. There were always such people, but they tended to get written out of the history books until um, comparatively recently, or they're they're in history books that are only about the peasants or only about the soldiers. And, you know, the whole big picture has tended to... um, play this down. Uh, There were peasant revolts all through the Russian Civil War. Um, They came to a a climax in 1920 to 1921, Uh, but they were there all all the time. And bear in mind that most people were uh, religious believers, and um, the Bolshevik campaign against religion, whether it was Christianity or Islam or Judaism involved not just uh, an attack on the clergy, but an attack of a way of life for most people. Uh, Religious processions, religious festivals, religious holidays uh, were very important. They were what people had been uh, brought up with. So many, many people it's impossible to quantify this because they didn't have opinion poll surveys in in those days. And anyway, who would have answered a, a, a an open question, frankly, if it might mean that they were arrested by one side or the other in the um, civil wars? So um, lots of people thought... Um, that the Bolsheviks were a bad lot, uh, including some of their own supporters within the first year having had to live under Bolshevik uh, authority. And that number steadily grew. And uh, when the Bolsheviks consolidated their power, then, of course, people grumbled but didn't revolt any longer. Uh, because it was too dangerous to revolt. The the, the penalties were so so terrible. So people felt that they had to get used to just coping with the Bolshevik way of life, making the best of it, Um, dealing with Bolsheviks, um, saying one thing and thinking another. And that happened through to the end of the Soviet years, through to the end of the 1980s, doublethink became uh, the way that you got through, the way that you coped, when you knew that there was no alternative. You see, the Hungarians in 1956 and the Czechoslovaks in 1968, they had memories of a different way of life. But the longer the Soviet period went on, the less memory there was of what had gone before? Uh, That's a really great question and it deserves deserves a book which it hasn't yet received. Uh, Okay, and another person on Twitter who had a question was uh, Nath C and he wanted to ask about the role of Jews in the Russian Revolution and particularly he wanted a refutation of the myth that the Jews, in quotes, were behind the Russian Revolution. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it does need refuting. Most Jews in the Russian Revolution uh, lived in the shtetls in the west of the former Russian Empire or had lost their homes because of the German occupation and they'd been forced to flee into uh, Russia. Uh, they wanted to continue their way of life, practice their faith, and not suffer oppression. So they, most, most of the village Jews, or the Jews of small towns, uh, wanted to be able to trade and to um, practice their religious beliefs unimpeded. And when the provisional government came to power in the February Revolution and allowed Jews to move across the country outside the Pale of Settlement, then Jews thought at last we are being liberated. Uh, and the Bolsheviks continued to, to say that uh, there should be no discrimination against uh, Jewish people. So most Jews thought, well, here is a, a window of opportunity for a better life. No reason to flee the country now. No need to emigrate. Perhaps. Let's hope. Let's pray. Jews were an ethnic and religious group that lay a lot of importance on education. And so a disproportionate number of the leading members of the political parties in 1917 in the newly liberated country that had been the Russian Empire, a disproportionate number of them uh, were of Jewish origin. Compared to the total number of Jews in the former Russian Empire, they were a tiny number. But because there was a residual amount of anti-Semitism, they tended to be thought of as the typical revolutionaries, whether they were Mensheviks, socialist revolutionaries, or um, Bolsheviks. And there was a disproportionate number of Jews in all of those socialist parties. And this became a theme of the far right, the far political right, at the time and in subsequent uh, years, so that all Jews were tarred with the same brush as Trotsky and Dan and Lieber and other Jews who gained prominence in 1917. But the history of Jewry in the Russian Revolution is a very sad one because most Jews were victims, victims of pogroms carried out particularly by the white armies, but there were also 
red pogroms that were carried out against the policies of um, and instructions of the Lenin-led government. But most of the pogroms were led by uh, the whites. So I'm glad that question was put. Um, uh, It's a very important aspect of the history of uh, the Russian Revolution and and it's not always very well understood and it does need refuting that the Russian Revolution was a, some 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 sort of world-led Jewish plot. Now just a couple more questions. Uh, we had one sent in by the historian Leander Delisle and she wanted to know what is the most exciting source material to have emerged about the Russian Revolution since the fall of the USSR? Cool. Well, well, when the when the Soviet Union fell, I was halfway through my three-volume study of Lenin, and I remember going to. Uh, Moscow after the August 1991 coup and being allowed to touch some of the some of the documents and examine some of the documents relating to Lenin's life and I thought that was that was something that would never happen to me this was months before the fall of the whole of the USSR I mean, lots of historians have gone there and had similar similar um, sensations. Um, I suppose reading books that Stalin had had in his library and that he had annotated in the margins, that, that was another... Um, another high point for me. Um, And um, at the other end of the political spectrum, reading diaries of ordinary people, ordinary Russians, who were living through this bewildering epoch of change where the whole of world history was being reconfigured um, I've been doing a lot of that in the last few years, and um, I, fi- I find that I find that really uh, mind expanding. Uh, what what I have felt is that uh, there's no fixed history of the Russian Revolution. There's still so much to find out. I, I I worked on um, that three-volume study of Lenin for 19 years. Uh, I had Lenin's 55 volumes in our bedroom. Uh, it was the only place in the house we could find room for it. I mean, I lived and breathed uh, Lenin. And then I went and wrote another single-volume bi- proper biography of him 
uh, and I thought, well, I've got this all sealed. I've got this all sealed down. I know everything I feel I ought to know about Lenin. Now, 20 years on, there's still stuff to be rethought. Actually, rethinking the Russian Revolution is more important than excavating the documents, because unless you think new thoughts, you don't know what you're reading when you're looking at the documents. Uh, and so it's still a very, very important and exciting, exciting subject. Just one last question. On the legacy of the revolution, would you say this was the most important event of the 20th century? Yeah, I would, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that the Russian Revolution um, didn't just configure what happened in Russia, didn't just transform Russia. Uh, the, the, the Bolsheviks blundered their way forward, not having an idea of what kind of state they were going to uh, build. Uh, and they invented the one-party communist state. Towards the end of the 20th century, this covered a quarter of the world's Earth's surface. It was, it was a phenomenal um, uh, transformation of world politics. And moreover, horror at what communism was provoked an antidote in the form of fascism uh, that um, eventually gave Germany Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. So it's hard to think how, how this would have happened in quite the way that it did had it not been for the Russian Revolution. So I don't think we can ever put uh, the Russian Revolution as event number two or three, it's got to be number one in, in the shaping of the history of the 20th century. That was Robert Service. As mentioned earlier, he's written numerous books on the history of modern Russia. Most recently, Kremlin Winter, Russia and the Second Coming of Vladimir Putin, which was published by Picador in 2019. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Victoria Panton-Bacon speaking about Second World War veterans. <laughs>